0: This afternoon I'm going to be sh- continuing to share with you some reflections on this theme that we've been uh, exploring together with you, the the theme of the five spiritual faculties, or as Gil uh, used the word capacities, these five capacities. And again, as uh, Gil uh, shared with us the first eve- evening, the, um, the word that's used for these spiritual faculties, one of them is these five indriyas coming from, uh, connected with this Vedic God, Indra. And one of the qualities that you find in this Vedic God, Indra, Indra is that uh, this God had a tremendous amount of influence. So in the same way, just as I was uh, sharing with you yesterday during the uh, the questions that we were um, answering in the evening, is that here are these five qualities of mind that can deeply influence the trajectory of our path towards awakening. And as Susie shared with us yesterday, when the five spiritual faculties are strong, they, they quicken the path towards um, our freedom. And this afternoon, what I'll be sharing with you is specifically some reflections around uh, this spiritual faculty of faith or confidence. and I'd like to begin in a maybe an unusual place, and that's to share with you kind of the opposite of faith and confidence, to share with you a story that exemplifies the opposite of that. Because I always find if I have a real sense of the opposite of something, I I get a, a sense of really what it is, especially experientially. As I've been sharing with you, I you know, I spent uh, about six years in a, a Zen community, a Rinzai Zen community, a Rinzai Zen uh, monastery, and was uh, ordained for most of that time. And it must have been after about a year after I was ordained, um, I, I remember really that first year really diligently giving myself to the practice and to the lifestyle and really I felt like I, I, I dove in to the Dharma in a, a a very deep way. And that way of life was incredibly demanding and exhausting, and um, uh, it was intense. And I remember after about a year hitting this huge wall, I actually even remember the, the specific time this happened. I was uh, coming back from... Um, Uh, what's called in Rinzai Zen, Zen, uh, San Zen, with the uh, Zen master, which is doing this Koan practice. And I actually felt uh, emotionally shattered. Um, And what I realized was happening is, when I look back at it, is this huge doubt was emerging in me, and I got deeply hooked by it. And I'm sure most of you have noticed uh, those of you who have been practicing for a while, how doubt can weave the most convincing stories? Have you noticed that? It's, it's amazing the power that it can have. And uh, the story that was coursing through my mind probably was something like, um, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> Sitting these long hours, wearing these strange black robes, shaving my head, And not only that, being surrounded by other people doing the exact same thing. (laughs) So it felt crazy in the context and then the doubt went towards other people like, wow, I'm surrounded by all these crazy people shaving their heads, wearing these black robes, sitting for long hours, not getting a lot of sleep. It was in some ways the perfect conditions for doubt (laughs) for my mind at that time. And then I could, uh, when I reflected back on it, I could see how it would this doubt would uh, move to other aspects. Then it would move to the practice itself. Like, uh, for example, uh, there's something so crazy about sitting these long hours as if it's going to lead to my transformation in some kind of way and a great doubt in the practice. And then it would bleed over into myself. Oh, there might be something valuable about this, but I know I can't can't do it. I don't have... Uh, what it takes to actually do this. And here were these stories that were swishing around. Sometimes it was the context. sometimes it was me that I was down, doubting. sometimes it was the practice, and it was all intermingled together. Have you ever had an experience like this? It's tough. That's the that's this quality of losing faith, losing faith in the practice. And losing faith in oneself, an absence of what I want to talk to you about tonight. And that's the striking thing. When I reflect back on it, it clarifies what actually confidence is, what sadha is the is the Pali word, what what this faith is. It's this it's this stability, it's this this confidence in what we're doing here. It's the confidence in my own ability to do this and it does have a kind of strength and stability to it and actually this is one of the qualities that uh, uh, the Buddha uses to describe this this spiritual faculty of um, of faith and I want to share share it with you this comes from uh, again the, the early discourses the, the Pali discourses he says just as Bhikkhu's the pillar in the king's frontier fortress has a deep base and is securely planted, immobile and unshakable for the purpose of protecting its inhabitants and warding off outsiders. So too the noble disciple is endowed with faith. So here we have it. The the faith is being compared with this, this deep base for the fortress. It's what allows the fortress to be stable and allows for this quality of protection. This is the first step that I I, I want to share with you is this venturing into faith. Now we have this one quality here, stability, a kind of strength to it, a kind of immobility. So then the question arises, what is this kind of faith, this kind of confidence, what does it look like? What's an example of this? And I'd like to again share with you another story that I feel really exemplifies this particular quality of faith, of confidence, the stability of it. And it's the story of um, uh, uh, Vedran Smilovic. Vaderin uh uh Smalevic was a um a cellist and during the Bosnian war between nineteen ninety one and nineteen ninety five. Um and just to set the stage, remember this is in Sarajevo and between nineteen ninety one and nineteen ninety five, for close to four years uh Sarajevo, Sarajevo was under siege, so it was actually uh surrounded by Bosnian Serbs. And so as a result of that, there was, for the residents of Sarajevo, there was usually um, often a, a lack of water, a lack of food, um, not much uh, heating or electricity. And then also there was this random um, and daily uh, sniper fire and shelling. And so it was this, this whole city trying to survive and live in the midst of the siege that went on for uh, close to four years. And what uh, Vadran Smilovic would do is he would um, randomly dress up into his full uh, uh, evening attire. And he would go out into all different kinds of places. Sometimes it was in the streets. Sometimes it was in, at funerals. Sometimes it was bomb shelters. Sometimes it was bombed out buildings. There's a, a striking um, picture of him that you can see. I think it might have been in the National Library where he's sitting... In his uh, full evening attire uh, with his cello. And it's said that uh, he played for uh, over 250 times uh, while he was in Sarajevo during this time. And I think if you just bring that to mind, the context, and also the image and this, this man playing cello, sometimes I, th- I feel like it gives, us, gives me the feeling of uh, the clarity and the confidence that would be needed to play music in such a situation again and again and again. The kind of stability. That's the kind of faith that I think we're, we're um, encouraged to cultivate. It takes a deep faith, a deep confidence to do something like that a confidence to commit to playing, a confidence to creating beauty. And I think another aspect of this faith and confidence that comes out with this example is to remember, I don't think he was playing. He didn't play the cello because he thought it was going to stop the siege the next day. He didn't play because he thought it was going to feed the people. He didn't play because he thought it was going to bring back the water or the electricity or the heating. He didn't play because he thought it was going to stop the sniper fire or the incessant daily shelling. And I think this is important to really take in, that the kind of confidence and faith that he had was in in a, in doing an act that didn't fit into some kind of nice, neat package of A happens and then B happens. It doesn't fit into that. And at the same time, what he did deeply moved people. We probably can't count the many ways that what he did moved and inspired and actually brought transformation to Sarajevo and beyond. you see how this is so important for what we're doing here? That if you have a kind of faith that gets entangled of, well, if I'm doing A, that means B must happen immediately. That's not the faith that we're going for here. Because it undermines the process. It just doesn't happen that way. For example, I gave you that example last night about growing vegetables in Flagstaff. (laughs) We can have the intention to grow the vegetables, but it's not going to happen immediately. It has to be a, a bigger confidence, a broader confidence than that, a more stable and a mobile confidence and faith than that. When you plant a seed, you, you need to have faith in that. You don't know when it's going to germinate and when it's going to blossom into that flower of awakening. So just as uh, Vader and Smelovic had this deep confidence in this transformative power of playing music, this is what we're encouraged to do, to have the same confidence in what we're doing here, regardless of how today is and how tomorrow is and how the next day is. So knowing it has this power of transformation, but not knowing how it transforms. Because for me, at its deepest levels, I think uh, still there is a mystery in how, how uh, this transformation takes place. Of course, we're explaining it to you in some ways, but there's, al- there's also a mystery of how it happens moment after moment after moment. But especially for those of you who've been practicing for a while, you know that it does even if you cannot connect all the dots. And this follows into another quality that is required in uh, faith or confidence in terms of uh, transformation. And that's this quality of holding our practice on one level, and I'll get back b- back to the, the, the importance of uh, how there's a little bit of a contradiction here, or a paradox, on uh, one level of not knowing. This quality of not knowing how it unfolds. Again, a story. This is a story about. Uh, uh, the Zen practitioner, Fayan, who actually uh, became uh, uh, a quite remarkable Zen master in his own right. And he was on pilgrimage with uh, some friends traveling from temple to temple. And he came across uh, a hermit, uh, Dizong, who also was uh, quite the Zen master. And um, uh, Dizong came to meet Fayan on his uh, pilgrimage and uh, asked Fayan, where are you going? And remember, often, you know, when Zen masters ask a question, they're asking more than where you're going. A lot of times it's the testing and the prodding and the poking to see where one's mind's at, the depth of the practitioner in front of them, which is important to remember for Zen Zen teachers. You know, they seem nice on one level, but you do have to watch (laughs) out. (laughs) At least that's my experience. (laughs) So again, Dizong asks Fayan, uh, where are you going? I think Vayan gives a pretty good initial reply. He says, on pilgrimage, wherever my feet take me. Which I think just to begin with, I think is so great, right? He's just on pilgrimage. He's just going wherever his feet takes him. He's just doing the practice of one foot in front of the other. Just doing the practice of being aware of what's happening right now. Wherever my feet take me. So Dizong prods a little bit further. Well, what do you expect from pilgrimage? And Fayan says, I don't know. And then Dizong confirms that and says, ah, ah, not knowing is most intimate. I don't know where I'm going. Ah, not knowing is most intimate. There's an intimacy that arises from that, from that particular flavor of not knowing. When I reflect on this interchange, one of the things I want to point out, at least for me about Fayan, is I actually don't think he was trying to give a profound answer when Dizong was asking him what he was expecting from pilgrimage. I think he just didn't know. He was just being honest. He was being completely honest about where he was. I have no idea. And it takes a kind of confidence to have that depth of not knowing. No, it and it's tricky, you know, it, it there can be a fear in showing others that we don't know, or even showing ourselves that we don't know. And remember, right, we we live in a, a, a society in a culture, a mainstream culture often, where um people will give you a job if you can convince them that you know something. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> And so then you get trained to do that in some kind of manner. And yes, there is a place for knowing on this path. This is something that we're also emphasizing so much is to know what's going on right now, to be aware of what's going on. To know that an emotion is an emotion, that a thought is just a thought. To actually step out of being lost in experience into no experience. To be aware of it, and this is where actually you could say one place where the five five spiritual faculties come in is that we want kind of this not knowing of of intimacy in terms of faith and confidence, but we want it balanced with um, another quality uh, spiritual faculty that we'll be getting to later, discernment or wisdom. So there's there's not a blindness as we move forward as well. So I've shared with you some of the qualities of faith and confidence, the, this quality of its stability, of its, its, its kind of strength, uh, uh, like that, uh, the base of the fortress. And I gave you the example of Vedran Smelovic, that kind of confidence that's not dependent upon some simplistic formula of how the world works, of A happens and then B happens. And also what also arises from that, this, this importance of not knowing in the context of faith. So this flavor of confidence, this flavor of faith, what do we have faith in? What do we have confidence in? And again, I wanna go back to uh, the, uh, the Pali discourses. This is in the uh, Connected Discourses, where the Buddha is talking about these five spiritual faculties. And he says, practitioners, there are these five faculties. What five? The faculty of faith the faculty of energy and mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, and the faculty of wisdom. In what, practitioners, is the faculty of faith? Here, practitioners, the noble disciple is a person of faith, one who places faith in the awakening of the Tathagata. Thus, the Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in knowledge and conduct, fortunate knower of the world, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teachers of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. How do we make sense of this description of confidence, of, of uh, faith? Namely, having faith in the awakening of the Buddha, of the Tathagata. How do we make this so it's something that's palpable and real for us moment after moment in our practice? What does it mean to have faith in the awakening of the Buddha? Or the, the Buddha himself? Once again, I want to share, share a story <laughs> to hopefully flesh this out a bit, at least to offer some reflections on this. Of course, it might be different for each one of you. This uh, is uh, comes from the uh, Dona Sutta, which is from the uh, Numerical Discourses, in the I think the the Book of Fours. Once upon a time, the Buddha was traveling from one town to another in the country of Kosala. And uh, as he was traveling, there was this Brahmin by the name of Dona who was following behind, and I think he was quite moved by just how the Buddha was comporting himself. And after the Buddha passed by him, he looked down on the ground and saw the footprints of the Buddha. And uh, he was just amazed because in the footprints of the Buddha, the the footprint he was leaving leaving was that in the heel there was this... um, Dharma wheel, which it said that, that, that had a thousand spokes and a rim on it in each step. So, of course, Dona was uh, deeply moved by this. And it, I, I just want to stop there as, as a way of beginning to explore what we have faith in. In one way, it's having confidence or faith in this person that walked in the world in a radically different way. And only walked in the world in a radically different way, touched the world and left a, a, a an imprint in a, 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 on the world in a radically different way. This is the invitation to to have confidence in somebody like that or something like this. And then, uh, Donna um and and then the uh, the buddha um Dona sees the buddha trail off into the forest to go sit and of course he's just amazed by these footprints i'm sure and so he follows the buddha into the forest where the buddha is sitting in meditation and i think decides to disrupt the buddha's meditation and probably this is probably more of a liberal translation of the pali but probably said something like what's up with the footprints i mean <laughs> I ain't seen nothing like that before. And, and then he said, uh, I'm just wondering, are, are you some kind of deva? I mean, I've never seen anything like that. And the Buddha said, no, no, I'm, I'm not a deva. And then uh, Donna asked, well, are you a Gandhaba?" And a Gandaba is another celestial being, a celestial musician. And the Buddha says, uh-uh, not a Gandaba. Well, are you a Yaka? which is a, uh, a, a, you could say, a nature spirit, like a tree spirit. And again, the answer is no. And he says, well, are are you a human being? And the Buddha says, no. And then Dona asks, well, what are you then? And the Buddha replies, I am awake. What is it to have confidence really, in essence, in wakefulness and being awake, and a kind of quality of being awake that leaves a different mark in the world, that walks in the world in a different way. See how th- th- we can start to get a different f- sense or a different flavor of what it means to have confidence in the Buddha, to have confidence in being awake to your experience, but a particular kind of wakefulness, one that, that um, touches the world in a radically different way. And taking it out of kind of a particular person, I'm situating it more, uh, not with the historical Buddha, but really with our potential, our potential to wake up. And what's it like for you to begin to have confidence and faith in your ability for awakening? This is something that, that struck me strikes me so much when I'm uh, here in the US practicing and teaching is that so often, um, people can have, I, I find that fellow practitioners can have so much more doubt about their ability to wake up. Whereas when I practiced in Burma or when I went to Nepal, it was just kind of, everybody knew that what we were practicing was for awakening. It was just kind of a de facto thing that, that everybody kind of assumed because it was the, the natural thing. That's what the path was about. And what came with that was, again, this claiming of one's potential to wake up on, on some level. I know that this has been a big struggle for me of how I underestimate myself, how my self-doubt is so strong that I am so convinced that there's something wrong with me that I can't rest in my own potential. It'd be so deep. I remember getting the first sense of this is when I uh, was practicing with uh, the Zen master I was ordained with is um, when I would go in uh, to do this koan practice, one of the things that struck me was that um, he was demanding nothing less of me than my awakening, than my deep understanding. And it was the first time I'd come across someone that had that kind of confidence in my potential. And it was something that I actually didn't understand probably for a couple years, because he was confident of it, and he was expecting nothing less and it was a natural thing for him. And it took me a while to get a sense, oh, this is where he's resting, he's resting in my potential. And I'm resting in some kind of fabrication that there's something wrong with me. Can I meet him here? It was really an inspiring thing to come across someone like that in my life. Annie Dillard puts it well in her book, Holy the Firm. She's using kind of language of Christianity, but I, I think it applies to us as well. She asked the question, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? So basically, using our language, who is it that has this ability to wake up? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? There is no one but us. There is no one to send, nor a cleaned hand, nor a pure heart on the face of the earth, nor in the earth but only us, a generation comforting ourselves with the notion that we have come at an awkward time, that our innocent fathers are all dead as if innocence had ever been. But there's no one but us, there never has been. Do you hear what she's conveying just with this simple phrase, "There is no one but us to me it 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 pulls back the curtain about this delusion that we have at least no i I know that I have that maybe you've partaken of too that somehow. This, this world of awakening, this world of freedom is for someone else, someone that is much purer than me, that has a purer heart or a cleaner hand than me. I know they're out there somewhere that has less imperfection than me. That's the person that can awaken. But I appreciate what she points out. There's never been a person like that. <laughs> what a crazy thought. There's no one but us. Can you cultivate the confidence in that? The confidence in the faith in wakefulness? The confidence in faith in your potential? With this kind of stability that we find in the story of Vedran Smelovic. So having confidence in our own potential and also in wakefulness in this practice that we're doing. How do you cultivate how do you nurture such a quality of faith so we have some of the qualities of it what to have faith in this practice one's potential as embodied in the awakening of the tathagata how to keep the fuel going to the fuel the fire that that allows faith and confidence to deepen Uh, to help give some reflections on this, I want to come back to the Pali word sadha, to to hopefully shed some light on this. The word Sadaha comes from the Pali word uh, sadahati, which at least one way of um, understanding that word is uh, to put one's heart into or to put one's heart upon and when i hear this 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 uh, this way of uh, conveying this word sadhati, which is underlined sadaha it reminds me that this speaks to a kind of emotional relationship that i have with this practice that is so important in particular it's this relationship of me being in love with this practice what has allowed you to fall in love with this path and this practice It's an important question. Maybe it's been a teacher or a community or the teachings themselves or probably maybe the most significant one that's allowed you to fall in love and maybe more and more deeply in love is your own direct experience of what this is all about, of how the Dharma has unfolded in your own life. And this is why sadha has to be balanced with wisdom, with discernment, with this direct experience so it's not a blind faith, but a faith that has the clarity of the depth of what we're doing here. And I think it's important to reflect on what allows you to fall in love with this practice and to continue to fall in love with and practice because it, it keeps, keeps you inspired, it keeps me inspired and it's important to touch that again and again and again especially in difficult times and in light of that what I'd like to invite us to do right now is just to take um a minute a minute now just to to come inside either closing your eyes or looking down at the ground maybe getting a sense of the of the body sitting sense of the breath. And I invite you to reflect right now, doing this reflection of asking yourself what allows you to be in love with this practice? What keeps you inspired? Placing that question in there and noticing what comes. And then asking yourself the second question, How can you keep in contact with being in love with the dharma? How can you keep the love flowing? What works for you? then making note of what came with those two questions, and then you might want to gradually come back into the room, kind of honoring what came for you. It's important to do that reflection individually, because I think the answers to both of those questions is going to be unique, probably, for, for everyone in here, but important to make note of that. For me, I, th- I think one of the things that, that is important is the, uh, the devotional aspect of this practice, which um, doesn't always get expressed so much kind of in the world of modern Vipassana, For maybe for better and I think sometimes for worse. I think one way that I express it, and it's a very small way but it really helps, is just the simple act of bowing when I bow before and after I sit. Because bowing for me is this bodily expression of, of something I value. It's, it's the expression of my deep respect, of my, my love for this path and this practice. And in some ways, what I appreciate about bowing is that I'm putting my head lower than it usually is. For me, it, it signifies, it's the bodily expression of putting me below the practice in this path. Which is important because this meanness is just this construct that causes so much dukkha. <laughs> and again, I want to point out that bowing doesn't work this way for everyone. Sometimes it works the exact opposite for, for folks. So again, it's important of what keeps the love alive for you. I do want to say a little bit about doubt, just the opposite of, of faith, because I think it, one thing that helps cultivate faith is also knowing how to navigate doubt. And I want to go through um, a, a few different ways of, of navigating it. What I notice is that when mindfulness is strong, all that's needed for doubt is to notice it as doubt. Oh, interesting. There it is again, doubt. Doubt is just like this. Interesting, there it is. And there's a noticing, there's a, a way of, of not being lost in doubt, but rather being with doubt. And that that is the distinction that we want really with every experience so that we can be with it and to notice it for what it is without being lost in it. And I think when 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 mindfulness is strong in that sense, that's all that's needed. But it's difficult because doubt can masquerade as discernment. It can be so tricky. And so how do you tell the difference between discernment and doubt? And one of the things that I notice is that uh, uh, doubt is immobilizing. It freezes me up. It arrests my capacity for moving forward with the practice. This is uh, well expressed by uh, uh, one of... Shakespeare's characters in his play Measure for Measure, uh, Lucio, who says, Our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. Our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. Our doubts are these things that they they fool us. They are the traitors because they, they create this fear from continuing to move forward. And if you noticed this in your practice, is that you're practicing and practicing and doubt arises. And what it does is it pulls the, the, the carpet from underneath us. It pulls away our practice from moving forward anymore. It pulls away our willingness to simply be present. Whereas discernment, what I find, it still has a, mo- a forward movement in it. It's fueling my practice rather than arresting it rather than immobilizing it. So again, you just might want to become curious about the flavor of what's arising. Does it have the flavor of discernment? Does it have the flavor of doubt? In order to help to navigate through it. I just want to end with um, an image that the Buddha gives to Dona. Remember Dona, the Brahmin, who saw the amazing footprints of the Buddha. I can find it. So the, the the Buddha sharing with Brahman that that um, uh, in this wakefulness, what's been uh, abandoned are the. Um, The fermentations or the kilesas, these defilements of the mind. And he gives this uh, beautiful image of, uh, of an awakened mind. He says, just like a red, a blue, or white lotus, born in the water, grown in the water, rising up above the water, stands unsmeared by the water. In the same way, I, born in the world, grown in the world, having overcome the world, live unsmeared by the world. So in the same way, may through our practice, we emerge as these uh, lotuses of awakening and of freedom that goes towards the liberation of all beings. Thank you. So let's uh, sit just for a minute here.